Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can come together in this space, Lord, and thank you that we can uh, have a chance tonight to just open our hearts again to you. Thank you that you are with us all and for us and always ahead of us. Pray this in your name. Amen. Hi, guys. Thank you, Kvass Karwin. Thank you, Karwin. That was awesome. I got my heart back in this trip, I just want to say. Niels kan ook op het werk. Can I presentation around this? Um, so, at what we're doing at the moment, if you weren't here for the last couple of weeks, so what we're doing at the moment is um, we're having this little mini-series about what we talk about when we talk about God, which is actually the title of a book by Rob Bell. And um, the, the idea for the, for the series came from, it was a series of conversations that Rob Bell had with Peter Rollins, the Irish philosopher, and we thought it was so cool that we want to just teach, basically use it as a springboard and then just talk through it and teach through it and so on. So um, it can sometimes be a little, maybe a little bit confusing or a little bit difficult to grasp or weird or whatever. And I just want, there's a little disclaimer, like there's no, there's no right or wrong. Like it might feel like sometimes it feels like the one way of thinking about God is feels wrong and the other way feels more right. And that could be right or not. It uh, also depends on where you are in your life. Because sometimes what I, my belief is that God, we normally start out with an idea of who God is and as we get to know him, we grow. So you might be at the one space or at the one idea or maybe like you like two of the ideas or three or maybe they're all overlapping and all one thing and that's all fine there's no real right or wrong it's just different thoughts and ideas about who God is does that make sense okay cool so I'm just gonna recap a little bit about um, where what Nick shared last week which is God as super being so the idea of God as super being is that God is, is almost like Superman. There's a scene in um, one of the Simpsons episodes where Homer goes, I'm not really a praying man and, I'm not, and I don't really have faith, but if you're out there, Superman, please help me. <laughs> right? Which is exactly what it means to believe in God as a super being. That God is, is out there and someplace else. God is not here. And then you, you have to pray or bring sacrifices or do certain things, give the right amounts of money or whatever for this God to come and then do his magic and come and save you. Right? So that's that kind of idea. It's almost the idea uh, of God being up in heaven and we are down here. And then God intervenes every now and again, sometimes seemingly randomly, and except when you pray for rain, because it, it always works. <laughs> it always eventually rains. <laughs> so um, that is kind of that idea of God as super being. So you pick, up, you pick it up in language like uh, when people say, it was such a great night at uh, youth. We used to have youth gathering, like back in the 90s, youth on a Friday night. Youth. We used to call it youth. Youth. <laughs> So we had youth, and it was such a great night, God showed up. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Yeah. So it's not wrong per se, but the thinking behind it is that God is elsewhere, and every now and again, God 
comes and shows up. So that's the idea of God as super being. God as super being is also um, what Nick pointed out last week, is a projection of ourselves. So whatever we are, God is that to the 10th degree. So if I know some things, God knows everything. If I can be in one place, God can be in every place. Right? Um, and then what also tends to happen with when God is a super being is God is always on our side. God is on my side and against them. Right? So that's where it takes a bad turn in my belief. Like when God, is, God hates the same people that you hate. Right? Because God is for us and against them. He is our God and not their God. And that is also belief in God as a super being. And God as a super being is an, is an object that can be studied. We can study it and we can study him and we can know things about him. And um, even saying him is also like God as a super being. Right? Because it's a projection of us that we give God, that we make God male. So a patriarchal society, their patriarchal societies, God is always male. Right? And a female matriarchal society will have female gods. So it's actually just a society thing. Wherever you find societies that had women doing most of the farm work, the gods would always be female because the women would be making the food come up from the ground. So the gods would be the ultimate women making food come up from the ground. So uh, it's a projection of who you are. So obviously, like just saying that there's a lot of problems that you can already see maybe with a thinking that just stays there. But at the same time, what Nick also pointed out so beautifully is that sometimes things happen like you pray for God to keep on giving you petrol in your tank so that you can get all the way through Bavashele, Mozambique, Botswana, Mozambique. And then, that, and then it happens. And then sometimes that you pray for somebody and they do get healed. And then sometimes you pray for food and then there's groceries outside of your door when you open up the door which is also beautiful and good and awesome right so um that is god as super being so god as super being is very is also it's also very black and white there's a very definite yes this is the right way to do it this is moral and good and right and no this is wrong this is sinful there's very little gray areas Okay? So the, and God as super being is the one that judges and knows everything and knows exactly what is right and what is wrong and you need to kind of fall in step. So tonight we want to move a bit further to another idea of who God is or how we can think about God, not who God is. How we can think about, about who God is. Oh, just another thought. I have to keep to my notes, otherwise I'm going to lose my, complete my argument. Um, who's watched those videos on YouTube where you have an atheist and a religious person and they argue? Right? It's normally the most pointless videos ever. Right? And what is so ironic about those arguments always is that almost always those two people, an atheist and a theist, so theist means God, believing in the God in a divine being, a theist means no God. So they all they both have the same view of who God is. They both always almost always believe in a God as a super being. And the one is trying to prove that the super being exists, and the other one is trying to disprove that the super being exists. Right? And they both fail because you can neither prove nor disprove that the super being exists. And the argument always just goes into circles. So 
It's actually the same size, the, the one, the same, uh, different size of the same coin, which is interesting. So, but there's another way to, oh, sorry. Which I. Can I on a slide? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Another way to think about God is God as a hyper-being. So hyper-being, hyper-being meaning uh, more than. So more than being. So this idea is the way that almost the mystics, go next one, the mystics think about God. When they talk about God, the language and the ideas that they use is, the, is God as a hyper-being. It's a being that is beyond conceptualization. Right? That is bigger and better and different than anything that you can think or say about God. That that is actually who God is. So sometimes it's, it gets a bit weird because that's exactly what it is. So um, I think it was Anselm that said, God is that than which none greater can be conceived. Meaning, you can think of something that's really great, right? Maybe do this little mental exercise. Think of something. Think of God that's really, really great. Okay? We can all think of that. Now, can you think that there is something that you cannot think of? <laughs> yeah, you can. I can imagine that there's something that's so great that I cannot imagine it. Right? That's what God is as a hyper-being. He is so great that I cannot think of it. That's the kind of the essence of it. So um, when you look in Scripture, you find this idea of who God is, just like you find God as a super being also in Scripture, where you find the God of the Old Testament that comes down and lives in the temple or lives in the tabernacle, that God, they pray to God, they hit, you know, Moses hits that we did with the kids this morning. And Moses hits the, the water and it opens or he touches the rock and it opens and there's water and there's food and there's manna coming down. That is like perfectly God as a super being. But what you also find in the Bible is God as hyper being. So you have, for example, in the book of Job, you'll um, have Job suffering and asking questions. Why, why, why? Why, why, why me? Why me, why me, why me? And then when you get eventually, and all his friends try to give answers. Right? You were sinful, you didn't do the right thing, da -da 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 -da. your children are bad. All these like perfect little answers, which is almost like God as a super being type answers. Okay? And then, but when God finally shows up, <laughs> when God finally shows up, that was actually a little joke, but never mind. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> in Job 38, Job 38, God comes, finally comes and answers Job's questions. But he answers it with a question, with a lot of questions. And he keeps on going, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you call out Lefiatan, the sea monster? Do you know where he lives? Do you know where the snow is stored? Do you even understand anything about how the universe works or how I work? And then in the end, Arma Yopas and then, in, and then God answers, exactly. And that's, that's as much answer as God gives. Is, I, I actually wanted to count how many questions there are, but I think there must be like a couple of hundred that God throws at Job all the time going, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? So stop arguing with me. You do not know how I work. And that is what God is as a hyper being. 
Um, here's another image way to think about it, is that if you have a sunken ship, a ship that's in the ocean, right? Got that image? The, the ship contains the ocean. The ship contains some of the ocean. But the ocean contains the entire ship. Okay? That's what God is. Saying that we understand some of what God is. We contain some of it. But we are also saturated in God. It's like you can... Another way to think about it is you can... We don't know who discovered water, but we do know it was not a fish. <laughs> okay? Because the fish does not know that it is in water. Although that the water is inside the fish and the fish is inside the water. And that is what God is, his hyper-being. God is not elsewhere. We are saturated and completely within, within God. So here's the trouble with, or the difficulty with God as a hyper-being, is to name it. So we, when you name something, you control it. This is actually, just on a side note, the one commandment that God gave man or humankind that they never let go of, that we always do. We always name everything. Right? We name the rivers, we name the mountains, we name the stars, we name our children, we name our dogs, we, na we name everything. Because when we name it, we control it. So there's also thinking that the moment you have the name of the demon, you have the name of the devil, you have power over it. So we see this in Jesus' story when he goes, what is, your, what is your name? And he goes, Legion. So there's that idea as well. That when you have the name of something, you control it. But what is God's name? Right? It's that. You can't say, Yahweh. Yahweh. Yeah. Which is a, an unpronounceable name. That the letters in it is almost vowel sounds, breathing sounds. That it's, Yod, ha, ve, ha. Like, it, you cannot even say it. And the Jewish people still to this day believe that you're not even allowed to say it. That God's name is almost unnameable. That when they write, they'll write G-D. And when, they, when people write Jehovah, it's actually like a, um, a cheating way of writing Yahweh. Because you can't write Yahweh, so you write Jehovah. Or they write Adonai. And even in the New Testament, you'll find when um, the writers say something like the kingdom of heaven, it's a very polite way to say God because you're not allowed to say Yahweh, but you can't say the name Yahweh, which also means just I am that which I am. And what's interesting about Scripture is that it's so difficult to name God that we give Him so many names, right? That we call Him the warrior, the provider, the mother, the this, the that, the that, the that, the that. It's like we're almost circling and circling and circling and trying to control this thing so that we can name it and study it and make it into an object. But we cannot. So what we do is we keep on naming and naming and naming. And what's fascinating in Acts 17, one of, I think one of the most beautiful chapters like in the New Testament, is where Paul is in Athens on Mars Hill and he talks to... And he talks to the people and he says, let me tell you, you've got lots of statues here of lots of gods. And there's one, and you call him the unknown God. Let me talk to you about that God. And he changes God's name. Like, you're not allowed to, do, you're not allowed to change the super being's name. You can't go and give him another name. And then he goes and he quotes their prophets and their poets. 
to explain his God to them. Which in a super being world is like the worst thing that you can do. In a super being world, I've told this many times, where people tell me, well, you know, the exorcism didn't work because you didn't say Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Like you have to say the whole thing, otherwise it doesn't work. And that is exactly like the super being idea. You have to call on the right name and then God will come down and then do his thing. Which is obviously not true. So, <clears throat> the, um, what Pete Rollins says is like the unnameable is the omni-nameable. So the one that you cannot give a name to is the one that you give so many names to. It's like poets trying to describe love or what love is. Because it's so difficult to, to describe it. You keep on trying to describe it. It's like it pulls you into this conversation of trying to describe and say who God is, who God is, who God is, and we keep on writing and writing and writing, just as poets keep on writing and writing about love and making films and making more things, trying to show what love is, although we can't really show what it is. So the more unnameable it is, the more we try to name it. God is that about which nothing can be said, and that is the reason that we never stop speaking about it. Yeah? God is that about which nothing can be said, and that is why we never stop speaking about it. Because, to be honest, like the Bible is a really bad book for answers. But like, well, I've said this a couple of weeks ago as well, we're Homer Simpson again, sitting in church, going, paging through the Bible, going, this book has got no answers. Right? Because there's no section about baptism, and there's no section about marriage, and it's really difficult. But if the Bible was meant to create conversation... Like it's doing a fantastic job. We've been going at it for like 2,000 years and we still don't get it. Right? And we still keep on going and every Sunday we're back at it and we're back at it talking about it and talking about God and talking about God and we still can't get it. But that's the beauty about love, isn't it? If you've ever been in a great relationship, but you know that the best part about being with another person is you don't get them. You never completely get another person. That's why you keep on trying to get them, but you can never get them. And that's part of the beauty of being in a marriage or being in a relationship. As you can never exhaust the mystery of what the other person is. And that's exactly what God is as a hyper-being. As you can never exhaust that, because it just keeps on... It's not like you've defined it, and there he is. When I do X and Y, then that happens. and It doesn't work like that. Right? Um, <clears throat> when you take art as an example... Art, like especially contemporary art, some of it is really, really difficult to get. Right? You go, but what does it mean? How many times have you stood in a gallery recently and go, but what does it mean? And you go, it doesn't mean anything. But do you love it? And you go, yes, I love it. I have no idea what it is or which way is up, but I love it. It's, it's almost like you don't get the artwork, but the artwork gets you. Like it, uh, almost like it, it hits you and changes your life. And um, what's so beautiful about this almost elusive idea of God, about God's presence that actually exists in his absence, where um, you see Moses, where Moses says to God, I want to see you. And then God says, okay. I'll put you in a crevice in the rock and I'll pass by and you can see my back. It's like that's exactly what it is. 
It's like you're almost there and you're trying to get it, but you can't. And most of the time in Scripture as well, it's like where um, the people only notice that God was there when he's gone. So Jacob has a dream and he sees the angels climbing up into heaven and down. And then he wakes up and he goes, God was in this place and I, I didn't realize it. I didn't know it. And in Luke 24, the people on the road to Emmaus, and then after Jesus uh, reveals himself and he disappears immediately, and then they go, wasn't that Jesus? That was Jesus, right? That's exactly what happens all the time. Wasn't that the Spirit? Wasn't that? That was just, exactly. That is what God is, as hyper-being. So if we go a little further, um, we, if we put a little slash in atheism, Meister Eckhart said that the atheist and the theist is always in this eternal love affair because we're speaking about the same thing. And if you put a little slash in between the A of atheism, Christians live in the slash. We create ideas about God and then we discard them. That's why doubt is such a massively important part of faith. Because if you don't keep on doubting, you'll never really grow into anything. The moment that you've solidified it and named it, it's dead. So if you keep on doubting your idea of God, when you came in here this evening, when you were here last week, whatever, you have an idea of who God is. But if you, if you keep on doubt, you have to keep on doubting that idea. If you think of God as a hyper-being, because you cannot think of how great he is. Make sense? Is everybody with me? Got it. Okay? So Meister Eckhart prayed, prayed and said, God, rid me of God. Rid me of my idea of who you, of who you are. And um, in the Russian Orthodox Church, there's a, a uh, how would you say the word? A sect or a part of it that renounced the use of images, of icons. And what they did is they, they called them hole, hole worshippers because they hit holes in the wall where the icons used to be. Because they say that that is the closest that you can think about God is to pray towards the hole. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I think that's one of the coolest things. I'm going to hit holes everywhere. Because <laughs> you cannot... And it's interesting then that God forbids the making of images of Him. Because when you make an image, you capture it and you solidify it. Right? And um, when, we, when we start talking about God like this as a hyper-being, we go into the world of images and metaphor when we, and the symbolic, where we keep on talking about saying God is like this, God is like water, God is like living water, God is like the rain, God is like the sun, God is like the wind, the spirit is like the wind. We go into all these images and metaphor and these symbolism where the symbolism that we talk about can be more literal than the actual literal. Because when you're talking about a God that is greater than you think, the only language you can use is symbolism and metaphor. Trying to describe that which cannot be described. And that shouldn't make sense, because it doesn't. Right? So, <clears throat> theology then, at its best, is something that needs... To get you. The word theology means God knowledge or knowing about God. God words. So it's something that you need to live. So theology, 
unfortunately becomes a science or became a science where in the past or in the Middle Ages it was something that was lived. You cannot, you cannot, write, you cannot say words about God if you do not know God, if you're not experiencing God. And when theology becomes something that you get, you get pulled into and sucked into, this learning and these words and these images and this knowledge of God, is then it becomes something beautiful. The theologian is someone that is taken up in the thing that they're concerned with. It is not something that is an object that is out there. It is something that is close here. Right? And it's not really about agreeing. It's about entering and joining the experience and joining the learning and the doubt and the metaphor and the images and the symbolism. And that is kind of the start of the idea of God as a hyper-being. And to be honest, God as a hyper-being is probably the most orthodox understanding of who God is. Right? That if you go back into the mystics and the orthodox church, that's kind of the understanding that most churches have or should have about who God is. God is a hyper-being, even though there's more than that. So I want to go a little bit further and um, talk about the absurdity. So the word absurd means it's wildly unreasonable, illogical, or inappropriate. For example, the allegations are patently absurd. So here's an idea that God is the absurd. Right? And one of the mystics would say, I don't believe that God is absurd. I believe in God because he is absurd. And you go, what? Believing that something is absurd is one thing, but believing in, in it because it is absurd is something completely different. Something that is absurd is unreasonable, illogical, doesn't make sense at all. It has no meaning. Okay? So in life in general, what we do, is all of us, is we search for meaning. Okay? This is our, almost like our primary drive, Maslow hierarchy of needs. We want meaning, fulfillment. We want to know that this means something. So, and as we go about life, we discover that most things don't mean anything. I saw a, a poor guy on Instagram with a tattoo that says, everything happens for a reason. I was like, yeah, sometimes that reason is you make bad decisions. <laughs> so, like getting a tattoo that says everything happens for a reason. So, we discover that everything doesn't happen for a reason. And it's immensely frustrating to live as a human being in a universe that has no meaning. Right? So this is where philosophy and religion and self-help books and Oprah and everybody come in trying to help us figure out what is the meaning. Why did my father get cancer? Why did my child die? Why did I lose my job? Why did my friend leave me? And we try and attach meaning to those things. And what is so frustrating is that religion tries, and answers, tries to answer and give meaning, and sometimes they'll give really bad answers, like you are sinful, that's why your child died. Okay? Or you are a bad person. But the irony is, that we would rather take that reason than have no reason at all. That it's almost easier for you to have a reason, even if it is a shitty reason like that, 
then have no reason at all. Or we try and say some things like, you know what, it all works out for the best. There's something good that's going to come of it. And then nothing good comes of it. Right? And you go, oh, this happened for a reason, so that, or nothing. Or they go, you know what, this is really going to build your character. That's what God is interested in. He's interested in building your character. You go, really, you want to take my kid away because you want to build my character? That is a really bad idea. Right? Or maybe your character doesn't get built through the whole trauma or the process. Or maybe you did every single thing right. Right? You studied. You worked hard. You got the right investors. You did every single thing right. And the business still failed. And there's no reason. And there's no meaning. Or you are a really great person. Right? And you look really fit. And everything is awesome. And you've got lots of money and a nice car. And you're really kind. But you're still single. And it's frustrating and horrible. And there's no reason. And no meaning. And this is, what we, this is where we live. And that is what is, what is absurd. That's what is absurd. What absurdity is. That there's, it's illogical. There's no reason. There's no meaning. So, <clears throat> what we do is we try and attach meaning to everything. To try and make sense of this world. When there isn't. Um, Ellie Wiesel? Weasel? Weasel? I don't, know to, I don't know how to pronounce his surname anyway. He was in the concentration camps and he tells a story. Weasel? Wiesel. Yeah, that makes sense. Wiesel. Weasel doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's absurd. So, um, Ellie Wiesel t- uh, tells a story in the concentration camp where a couple of men were executed to be hanged and a boy. And all the prisoners were made to watch. And as the gallows fell, the men struggled for their life and everybody was forced to watch this and the boy. And then the whole camp was forced to to walk past the gallows, past the bodies hanging there. And the men took about a minute to die, but the boy was much lighter. And it took about 20 to 30 minutes to die. And as they were walking past, Elie Wiesel heard somebody say, where is God? Where is God? And he heard a voice in him rise up and say, there is God on the gallows. There is God living and dying with that boy. And that is God as the absurd. When we have a religion with the cross as our central symbol, And the cross is something that is completely, completely absurd. And listen, when I first heard this idea, I was like, finally, it felt to me like the first time I could really understand, or try even to begin to understand what the cross is. Because for so long, so many people have tried to write and preach and sing about what the cross means. And it's so difficult. Like, we keep on trying to trying to lock it down because it doesn't make any sense at all. A God is not, does not get crucified. A God doesn't die a horrible death like that. A God doesn't shout out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't make any sense. It's like 
the Holocaust as a whole. Peter Rollins uses this example. He says, if we take the Holocaust and you try and attach any meaning to it, it's sacrilege. If I say the Holocaust, it was for, to, you know, the Jewish people were really bad, and that's why the Holocaust happened, right? That is not something that you can say. Even if I say something, it was a, a proofing for them to build their character. Nothing, nothing can be said about it. There's n none of us would dare to try attach meaning to it because it's so horrific. And the cross is the same thing. It is so beyond horrific that it does not have meaning. That it is almost, there's a book written, Christ, the end of meaning. I've forgotten the author now. But um, that's one of my favorite pictures of the crucifixion because it actually looks real. That somehow that God is in the crucifixion and that he is with Jesus to an extent or with the boy on the gallows. That that is who God is. That there is no meaning other than God is there. Have you ever had this, right? Where you have shared one of the most painful, horrific experiences of your life with a friend. Right? And, you, and they give you no answer. Because there are no answers. There's no meaning. They are just there with you. With you voicing and vomiting all of this. And aren't those the most holy moments ever? When you can just voice and open your heart and suffer and somebody acknowledges that you are suffering and somebody says, I can see that you are suffering even though there is no answer or no meaning or no reason for it. And that somehow, when you look at Scripture, that God is always there to help us bear it. Not to take it away, but to help us bear it so that we can go through it, even if there is no reason after. That the reason is that just that God is there. And that is what God is in the absurd. Which is something that gives me hope and peace in a way that I cannot explain. For example, I know I've told this many times, like I have severe depression and every now and again I go into what is called an episode, right? And there's no reason and it can be triggered by the randomest thing. And the only thing that works is when my wife holds me. That's it. There's no... That's it. It's like salvation in a cuddle. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right? And there's no talking after, and there's no explaining. That's just all there is. And that's what God is. Is that God is with us in that. And that is what God, I think, God is as hyper-being that goes beyond meaning and goes beyond trying to have an answer for it. When you can vent and just be. And that is truly awesome. When we often, we say at third place, like we break bread, pour wine. 
and even that, that God is in the breaking and that God is present in the pouring of the wine, in the pouring of the blood, in the breaking of the body, that somehow that God is there. And when Jesus talks about his parables, it's always the seed that is dying, the coin that is lost, the sheep that is lost. It is in that, and that God is somehow wrapped up together in that. So on that, I want to leave you and say that God is in the absurd, and that God is the absurd. And that God is that which disrupts the normal. Because, to be honest, there is no normal. But the God is present in that. And I feel that that is what we believe, and that is what we chase for, and live for, and know. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that we can come together and continue the conversation that has been going for thousands of years. That we can create ideas about who you are and how you work and how you are present. And forgive us where we fail and help us to doubt the ideas that do not bring life. Thank you that you are with us in our suffering and within the meaninglessness. Thank you that you help us bear it that we can put our burdens on you, that you are the hand that covers us, that you are the eye of the storm, that you give us a peace that goes beyond all understanding because it does not make sense. Thank you that you love us and that you fill us with your spirit and that you are around us and that you are for us and that you are with us and that you are ahead of us. We pray this in your name. Amen.